Broadcasting live from the Delta Media Studios in Upper Lafayette. Two hours of sports talk like none other. Footnotes with your host, Kevin Foote. Welcome into Footnotes on the game. I am not Kevin Foote, as you may have noticed. It's Dawson Iserlo in filling in for Kevin as he is on his way to Miami, Coral Gables specifically, to cover the Coral Gables Regional, in which the Louisiana Raging Cajuns will be the number three seed. Um, but we've got a lot in store for you here today on this Thursday edition of Footnotes. We are going to talk to Kevin. We we're originally going to try and do it in this first segment, but he is in the airport, and as many of you know, the airport is uh, not the most predictable place in the world. So we're going to try and do it in the next segment. So hopefully we're going to get Kevin on, uh, kind of get some of his thoughts on the regionals that he's about to go and cover, of course. Uh, maybe a little bit of the Astros, who had uh, a less than stellar performance against the Twins in the series finale yesterday. Um, so we'll hope to do that in the next segment. We're also going to be talking to Lon Beto, um, the UL track and field coach. We had him on a couple of times on footnotes. Of course, Kevin talked to him um, throughout the season, had him in studio once, and then talked to him again before the regionals, while the regionals took place. And it's definitely a very unique format. We've kind of hinted at that, and so we're going to ask um, kind of how that went, get a bit of a recap from him and, and look ahead to what's left for the Cajuns in that regard. So that's going to be coming up at 9.35. Um, and then something I'm really excited to do. It's I've talked about it before. The college baseball regionals are really kind of my most, one of my best weekends of the year. One of my favorite weekends of the year, I should say. Um, there's just so much going on. So, so much chaos usually ensues, especially those first couple days of regionals when you've got a ton of different teams playing, a ton of different games going on simultaneously. It's, of course, very similar to the beginning of the NCAA tournament in basketball. Um, but the fact that it's double elimination just adds another layer of intrigue, of course. The teams that lose tomorrow are not done. They're going to play again um, and have a chance to play their way back in. Sometimes, you know, I would I would guess you're going to see at least one one seed go down tomorrow. Um, that would be just a bit of a prediction, right? Um, but that doesn't mean by any stretch that that team is going home. Those teams will have a chance to pull themselves out of the loser's bracket although it is, of course, the much tougher path to take. So what I'm going to do to kind of try and get you prepared for regionals, and you guys know I kind of, if you listen to footnotes regularly, you know I kind of think of things a little bit differently in some regards. Um, and some things I follow a little bit more closely, and college baseball is one of those. So I'm going to try and kind of give you some different avenues, prepare you for some of the regionals that aren't the ones that you're definitely going to be paying attention to. Of course, LSU fans are going to be following the Baton Rouge Regional closely, and Cajun fans will be following Coral Gables closely. Um, you might even, of course, have some interested in the Tuscaloosa Regional that Nichols is a part of. But I'm going to try and give you not only a little bit of a preview of those individual regionals, which I will do, but I want to kind of give some superlatives. And that's kind of the idea I came together, kind of putting some of my research, some of the stats that I've um, compiled want to try and prepare you for some of the other regionals that you may see just across the screen. I think ESPN's bases-loaded coverage, which is kind of like, if you're familiar with Red Zone for the NFL, that's kind of like that, um, where they're just going to whip around to all the different regionals, any of the big situations that are going on. It's what I love to watch on those first couple days, as I've been mentioning. So, you know, you might say, oh, well, what's going on in the, uh, the Terra Haute regional that Indiana State's hosting? I'm going to have you a little bit more prepared for that than you than you maybe would have been otherwise. So that's going to be today. We're going to spend a couple of segments on that. I'm also going to talk a little bit of NBA Finals um, because I think it's pretty interesting the way this all played out. And Kevin has certainly talked a lot about it 
when the Celtics were in it, he was, of course, petrified that they were going to come back and win that series, given his hatred for the Boston Celtics. Um, they didn't get it done. Miami did. So I think he's breathing easy. But I'm going to kind of talk about some of the storylines between Denver and Miami, which that gets underway tonight. And we're actually going to start there. That's that's what I'm going to kind of start with here. Um, look, I think the way that the NBA season played out, for me, of course, I'm a Pelicans fan, and so it was uh, a lot of excitement early on. Um, I, again, and admittedly, I'm not as diehard about the NBA as I am about the NFL, um, college, baseball, football, and basketball, and even to an extent, Major League Baseball. Um, but when the Pelicans are better, I find myself even more interested in it. And usually come playoff time, I'm pretty invested at that point in the season, and I like to kind of see the different storylines that played out. Um, I doubted Denver the whole way. Like, no, no shame in saying that. But, what I and I brought this up yesterday on the show, I think it's very interesting that a lot of the experts and the analysts are right now saying that this isn't surprising, we all saw this coming, or we all should have seen this coming. And I guess should have seen this coming is maybe an okay answer, but I just don't even know if I buy that. Because the reason that we doubted Denver, the reason I doubted Denver, is that they've been a good regular season team before that didn't get it done in the postseason. So that's why I had doubts, and I think that's why many had doubts. It's not that I didn't think Denver was a good basketball team. I know they're a good basketball team, and they have a great player in Jokic who's won the MVP twice. I mean, nobody doubted any of his abilities, but how can he perform in the postseason? I think certainly that was fair to doubt because Denver just hadn't gotten it done. So I just kind of think that's funny that that's, people are kind of coming around on that, and I get it. That's what's going to happen when something like this takes place. Some people are going to act like they saw it coming the whole way. But my point being in all this is that I, I am surprised that Denver got to this point, whether, you know, no matter what circumstances I'm taking into account there, I am surprised that they did it, and I'm especially surprised how dominant they were in doing it. Let's not forget that Phoenix kind of challenged them in that second-round matchup, right? Um, and that was a Phoenix team that, of course, had tons of firepower, had Kevin Durant, had Devin Booker, who, by the way, played out of his mind for a large stretch of that series. And they got that, you know, they got a couple of games. They had it at 2-2. Um, but Denver then pulls away, wins the last couple of games of that series to close it out. And I think at that point, we're still kind of unsure. But I think what happened against the Lakers for the Denver Nuggets, dominant in that series, even when the Lakers played well, which was, you know, certainly the case at times in Game 4, uh, even at Game 1 towards the end when they try to make that run, Denver was never really in doubt in that series. And I think that is maybe even more impressive than what we saw early on in the postseason for them, and even maybe against Phoenix. Now, Phoenix tested them a little bit more, but what they did against the Lakers was just put their foot down and, and show that they were kind of the premier team in the Western Conference. Now, that Lakers roster was certainly flawed, and it was a bit of a surprise that they were even at the point they were at, right, in the postseason. Um, but I think what Denver did to kind of not only win the Western Conference Finals, but dominate them was just super impressive, and it's it certainly changed the way I've felt going into this series, where you're going to face uh, a Miami Heat team who, on the other side, has is you know no strangers to being doubted, right? Um, and I'll kind of flip over to that side now. Miami's a team that I, of course, didn't see coming. Now, this one, I don't think anyone's really claiming to have seen this coming, right? I don't think anyone envisioned Miami putting together a run. I think it is. It's funny too. We make fun of the playing tournament a good bit here. I, I like to uh, make fun of it, but. Miami almost didn't even get out of that playing tournament. They were the seven seed going into it, then they lost their first game. I mean, they were on the verge of elimination. If they don't win that second playing game, they are done. And it wasn't like it was a 
super comfortable game the whole way through for them. But they win the play-in game. They get in as the eighth seed, and everyone said, okay, well, that'll be it. you know. And I did say at the beginning of that series with Milwaukee, I thought they'd win it in five or six games. Like, don't get me wrong. But I did say, you know, maybe Milwaukee's probably not super excited that it's Miami, right? Like, they probably would have preferred anyone else that was in the playoff tournament, Chicago or Atlanta or any of those teams. Um, I thought, you know, just the fact that it's Jimmy Butler, I could see them getting a game or two, whereas... You know, I don't know if Milwaukee, if anyone, you know, if Atlanta or any of those teams was even going to win a game. Um, well, certainly they got a game or two. They got the whole series. And not only did they get that series, but they got it, of course, uh, in just five games. Now, the Giannis injury played a factor, and all that's fair. Um, but Miami, of course, put us on notice with that series. But oftentimes, we just heard RP3 discuss it when we were talking to Corey Glore um, about the run that the Tulane Green Wave just went on. When a team kind of does something that's really improbable, plays above their you know, perceived talent level or ceiling that we place on them, at least from the outside, a lot of times the perception is, at least, that that takes a lot out of you. And by the time, once you take a deep breath and there is more to be played, there's another game on the horizon, you're not going to have your best stuff, right? That's kind of how that usually goes or how we perceive it to usually go. Well, Miami backed it up by just handling the New York Knicks. And I think that's, of course, for the time, that's when I kind of said, okay, wait a minute, this isn't the same, you know, this isn't just a, a cute story with the Heat. This team has figured something out. And I think that's a key difference, right? When is it just exploiting a matchup versus actually figuring something out? And I think that was clear after that Knicks series that this Miami team had figured something out. Now, even with that being said, still favored Boston in the conference finals, still thought Boston was the much more talented roster, still thought they had the better stars, um, certainly maybe gave Miami an advantage in the coaching department with Spolstra, but felt like Boston would be able to come through there. And then Miami just, again, they win three straight games to start that series. Now, the beauty of result-oriented thinking, which Foot and I, I think, are mostly in agreement on, I think that's something that happens far too often in sports, right? And it, it is what it is. It has to be like that to an extent because... We assign wins and losses at the end of contests. Um, But my point here is that Miami then loses the next three games. And so I think that's maybe playing into what I'm going to get to with my whole point of this kind of long monologue I've been on here. Um, Miami is big underdogs now against Denver. I think most of that comes from the fact that they did lose three games and they almost, quote-unquote, choked the the series away, almost became the first team ever to relinquish a 3-0 lead. Um, but at the same time, they closed out Boston, and not only did they close them out, they closed them out in Boston, and they dominated Game 7. So that's where I start to, again, pause with all this and go, well, where are we with this Miami team? First things first, I, I completely ignore the regular season at this point, and it is worth mentioning when you're talking about the narrative and the stories that are coming from this, how bad the offensive numbers were for Miami. And again, I've brought them up several times, like 25th, I think, in three-point shooting near the bottom in offensive efficiency. Like, they weren't good throughout the regular season. But when you're speaking of the matchup with Denver, that team doesn't exist anymore in my mind. The team that exists is the one that beat the Milwaukee Bucks in the first round, beat the Knicks in the second round, and beat Boston in seven games. That's the team that you need to compare to Denver. And on the same account, when you're looking at Denver, I think you look way more at the team that won their first, second, and third round playoff matchups than the team that won 57 games in the regular season. I think that's another thing that we have to take a look here and kind of parse through when we're evaluating how these NBA finals are going to go. 
With that being said, the biggest surprise to me about game one of these finals already before it even takes place is that Denver's 10-point favorites are 9, 9.5, anywhere from 9 to 10-point favorites. I think it's kind of like this this funny thing where it's like, well, at what point are you going to believe in this Miami Heat thing? Because also, by the way, the NBA playoffs take place over the course of like what feels like six months. I mean, they're long. It's not like the NFL where, you know, it's a month. Like Miami has been a different basketball team, not just for a series or for a few games. It's been a mini season, right? These NBA playoffs are that long, and they have been this different team that is better than the teams they've faced. So even though I still favor Denver in the series, and I still think Denver is an overall better basketball team, and I would take them to win the series in six games probably, I think it's funny that this assigned nine-and-a-half-point underdog situation with Vegas, and look, Vegas knows more than we do most of the time, but I think this game's closer than that. I think Miami's going to play really well. I did kind of bring up in the first show, and I do think it's a factor. Miami doesn't have a whole lot of rest, and Denver had plenty. Denver finished their series up almost two weeks ago. Miami was playing just a couple nights ago. So does that play a factor? But on the same kind of side of things, does Denver come out rusty? Does Denver struggle early on to get back into a rhythm because they haven't played competitive NBA basketball games in almost two weeks? I think both those things are in play here. So I think all that taken into account, it's going to be a close game. I really do. I like Denver to win the game, to win game one and kind of get off to a good start. But I really, really wouldn't be surprised if Jimmy Butler puts together another vintage performance um, and is able to do something special. Last thing I'll mention about this before we get to our first time out and then bring Kevin Foote, of course, the host of the show, on to talk in the next segment, is that Boston was able to do something with Jimmy Butler there towards the end. When they made the run and won those three games, um, and even in game seven when they lost, they were able to defend Butler a little bit better and a little bit differently than he's been defended in the past. Now, part of that's always going to be personnel. Some of the guys that they have defensively with Marcus Smart and those guys kind of throwing different looks at him. But I wonder how much Denver paid attention to what Boston did and, and what their plan is. Um, I don't know if there's a clear-cut answer, um, especially with some of the performances Butler put together throughout this postseason run. But you certainly have to try different things, and I think that's something I'm really fascinated by, is is what's Denver's plan? Um, is it as simple as sticking your best man-to-man defender out there and, and saying good luck? I don't think so. I think you're going to have to try and do some different things. Um, and so what does that look like, and how much attention do they now have to pay to a guy like Caleb Martin, who just, again, not only did it for one game, he did it for a seven-game series. He was outstanding, and he was maybe his best in the Game 7 winner-take-all game with all the pressure on um, so that's interesting to play out. And then, of course, it's going to be about Jokic. What what can what can Miami do? Is it out of bio? How many different guys do they try? What kind of different... Do they want to get the ball out of Jokic's hands? Of course, that's always the idea, but it's just not as easy when Jokic is as skilled and precise a passer as he is. So those are kind of the, the two main factors I'm looking at uh, in Game 1. And it's, of course, what, what many are going to be watching for. How do the stars... How do you handle them? And then, of course, beyond that, which role players are going to step up? Miami's had a bunch of different guys do it all throughout this postseason. So that should be fun. Game one tonight, 7.30. A lot going on this weekend, and the NBA Finals game one is certainly a part of that. we got to take a timeout, but when we come back, we're going to try to see if we can talk to Kevin Foote as he gets ready to head to Coral Gables and cover the Coral Gables Regional. That'll be next right here on Footnotes. This is Footnotes on the game. 1037 Lafayette and 1041 Lake Charles. Southwest Louisiana's sports station. Your home for the LSU Tigers and Houston Astros. Go subscribe to the game's YouTube channel at The Game Louisiana. 
That way you can check out the latest original videos and more shenanigans from the game. 1037 Lafayette and 1041 Lake Charles, Southwest Louisiana's sports station. Welcome back to Footnotes. Dawson Angelo filling in for Kevin Foote here on the game. Again, we are broadcasting live from the Evco Development Studios in Upper Lafayette. Evco Development is a civil construction company that specializes in new multifamily construction. But again, of course, it wouldn't be a proper episode of Footnotes if we didn't speak to the man himself, Kevin Foote. So we welcome him on now. Kevin, how is airport life this morning? Well, it was interesting. Right when I walked in, Coach O was walking out. Um, you don't often see someone you know as you're not that I know him, but I know who he is walking in right. as you're walking out. But uh, it, it's been pretty smooth so far. So let's start with the Astros. Last night wasn't great. Series finale against the Twins and Hunter Brown. You know, I don't know if it's time for concern yet, but he hasn't quite been great in his last few outings. Do you make anything of uh, of yesterday or do you think he'll be fine? No, I didn't think he really pitched that bad. It was one of those games where they kept just getting these little three hoppers that found the way through the infield. And he, I think they said at the end of his outing, he hit, there was like four balls hit the whole game over 100 miles an hour. They they didn't really hit the ball hard. It was just one of those games where they just got a, you know, base hits that just went in the right spot. And they, what they did do, the Twins, an incredible job of it. They followed off, they fouled off an incredible, incredible amount of pitches it was like 20 something of his pitches were fouled off and so they just did a great job of being pesky at the plate and found some holes and his line looked terrible but I don't think his pitching was that bad other than he could he struggled to find a pitch to put him away and they just kept falling balls off well now they they had to uh face the little MVPs uh well actually I guess they'll stay home to face a little MVP yeah but yeah, you know, they just, uh, th- th- again, they had won, what, 15 out of 19, and like I said right. yesterday, they weren't, I don't even feel like they're playing that well. They're just winning, and all you got to do is pile up the wins, again, just avoid the sweep. They avoided the sweep against Minnesota. They went 2-4 and four against Minnesota. My memory is they went 2-4 and four against Minnesota last year, too, and then beat them in the, in the postseason, so... As long as they avoid sweeps, they'll be fine. Uh, the news yesterday is that Arkady's supposed to be back sooner. Who knows about McCullers? But I think they'll be okay. They just have to um, avoid the losing streaks, and they'll be fine. Well, I, the only thing I'm somewhat concerned about is testing kind of the depth of the starting rotation in a long stretch like this where you don't have off days and you're going to play a four-game series beginning on a Thursday and you just finished a three-game series with Minnesota. Um, do you do you have any concern with that? I guess you know for now you still have five starters because Belak has has been a starter. He hasn't been anything less than it. Yeah, the, I just think like last night, you just there's just games where you just have to follow them under your 54 losses before you start, and there's no <laughs> reason to when you're down five to nothing and you have like two hits, like or and then it got to eight to nothing. I mean, I'm, it's not impossible to win, but there's no reason to, to just burn some guy and, 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 and save your bullpen for that day, which is essentially what they did. So could they pitch Mashinsky and they, and they pitch Martinez and you just get through it. You win the games that you think you can win, but 
when, when you never, they don't have another day off till next Monday. So a week and a half from now is when wow. they have their next day off. So they need to just, there's certain games that you just file under the 54 losses you get before the season starts and you move on. There's no reason to try to be a hero. And that's what they got to do. Even though your gut tells you, your competitiveness tells you to do it, but you got to be wise how you use your relief pitching from, from here on out for the next two weeks or so. Well, there was some news with the New Orleans Saints yesterday. I, I'm guessing you're going to be kind of like I am. This is a signing that barely even raises an eyebrow for me, but the Saints add some more depth at tight end with Jesse James. Uh, does this do anything, or are you kind of like me in that it's just it's just a depth signing? This is just a classic June 1st depth signing. Well, I think it is, but, you know, it was interesting. I, you never know about these little OTA reports, but I saw a little online thing yesterday, and this is a name we brought up a couple of weeks ago that to remind all of us that, that he's still there. And they listed the four people who were the most impressive uh, in the OTAs, and one of the four was Lucas Kroll. And right. remember, he was signed as an undrafted free agent. He was one of Bobby Scott's um, uh, targets at Pitt. And, uh, you know, they liked him last year, and they said he's been very impressive. He was very impressive in the OTAs again. And I, w- I would, you know, it wouldn't surprise me if, if he makes the team. But, no, there's nothing wrong with having a little depth. The guy who's been there and, and done it a little bit. But I, I kind of I would be surprised if he beat out Crawl at this point. But we'll see. Okay, the elephant in the room. You know, you left yesterday with kind of this question about a tropical disturbance, and I kind of brushed it off at the time. But uh, I will say I I looked into it further, and you have something there. Um, It's not looking great for Miami, especially at least the first couple days of that regional. Um, Did you look any further into it, and what's your confidence level that these games are played uh, at least somewhat on schedule? Well, I have no idea. I just know after – Getting in, and I was getting in line to check in. I ran into Mike Conrad, baseball fan, UL baseball fan. You know him, and he was talking about that very thing about, you know, in the Naples, Fort Myers area. And I'm like, uh, that's not very far from Miami. So, <laughs> no, I've not looked into it, but I, I do not want anything disturbing it. But it, it's not looking good. It sounds like for the first couple of days. Yeah, I saw about four to six inches each on Friday and Saturday. So I guess the hope there is that it's around the games. But I did bring this up to RP3, and, and I wanted to get your take on it as well. Like, I think Miami might have made a mistake here by playing a late game. And, and again, how much did they know about the forecast? I guess they, they know more about the weather in Miami than most of us should, but they chose the late game. But now I'm thinking the Cajuns in Texas, if you get this game played early and the rest of the day gets wiped out, maybe some of Saturday gets wiped out, you could have a big advantage having played your first game, and then again talking about extending this regional out extra days. Pitching that could end up helping you in the long run. No, it could, and and again, it's so tricky because especially when you're like the Cajuns and you don't have a bunch of deep pitching staff, you got to be real careful how often you warm up these guys. You know, maybe before rain delay or. And, and, and you know you don't you got to be careful how you use your you know you warm up your arms before because you and and the last thing you want is a guy to come out and pitch for two innings and then you and then you get rain delayed for the rest of the game and then you you basically wasted a starting pitcher so they've got to some kind of way of avoid that you know the other interesting dynamic in all this it I didn't notice this until last night 
But Hogan Harris is scheduled to make his his first major league start. It'd be his third major league outing tomorrow night against the Marlins in Miami at like 640. So I don't know how the rain could play into all of that, rain delays, and maybe they get rained out and he pitches on Saturday. So it could be a great opportunity for some Cajun fans to catch the Cajuns against the Longhorns and then watch Hogan pitch against the Marlins if the rain and the schedules all work out. Well, that that would be actually really cool, honestly. And uh, Hogan looked—I mean, he looked really good against the Astros in that relief outing. So maybe he's—he oh, he, uh, he looked on that. tremendous. I, I didn't see it live because I was covering uh, softball and, and all that on, on, you know, watching in the baseball. But then I went—I taped it like I do all the Astro games and went back and watched it. And no, it was—it was very impressive. So overall, and you kind of put together, I was looking over some of the stats and stuff from this regional. I think it stands out that there's 63 combined World Series appearances, which we talked about that a little bit already this week, but it's teams that are used to being here. Now, Maine's appearances, of course, are all a long time ago, but uh, do you think the fact that these teams like Miami and Texas expect to be here, does that play into this at all? Or do you think, I mean, the Cajuns are a team that's been to a regional and almost everyone on this roster was a part of last year's run, so... How do you think any of that that experience level plays into this? The, the funny thing is, you know it, but like when you sit there and look, Texas is 60th regional. Yeah, Miami 49. Like they have like 110 or something combined regionals, and they won. One of them's won like 39 regionals. The other one's won 28 regionals. You realize you're playing. You're in the same regional with arguably the two best college baseball programs ever. I mean, literally, if not the top two and the top two or three or four. So, no, obviously tremendous. The other thing that stuck out is Texas uh, has played 31 games that were decided by three runs or less, and they're only 16 and 15 in those games, and they're six and eight in one-run games, which isn't terrible, but also not dominant in those one-run games. And that, that, that I thought that was a little bit peculiar. The other thing that stuck out to me when I – did a little bit of research on it is they they have a, a hitter who's hitting 35 straight games, which is a pretty big number. And the other thing about Texas is, and I didn't realize this because I don't really follow Texas that much, is I remember Porter Brown last year yep. played for TCU. He transferred to Texas. He he went one for two uh, in in both games. So he was two for four in the two regional games in College Station with a double homer and RBI. So that's an interesting um Kind of tidbit, and obviously their ace pitcher Lucas Gore and his numbers are very impressive. What a two five five! So, you know, there's no question they're going to be tough. I think the thing is sometimes when you played as much as the Cajuns, like you're more ready, and the other team is more. It's you know we do the old is are they going to be rusty or ready or rested or rusty when you haven't played as much, and I'm worried that they're going to be more rested than they are rusty, but we'll see. Well, and. To that point of the Texas pitching staff, they do have a couple of key relievers that are going to be out, so kind of no different from the Cajuns in that regard. But uh, overall, I guess sometimes we, we, we try to look at it from every different angle, but I think sometimes it's a little simpler. If the Cajuns lineup hits the way that they're capable of hitting and the pitching staff does anything close to what they've done the past month or so, they got a good chance to win some games. But what do you think has to happen for them to make a run and try to maybe take the whole thing? Well, they're going to have to hit, you know, better than they did in Montgomery. I mean, they had, like, one get good, really good offensive game in Montgomery. I mean, I, you you hope that the pitching does pretty well, but, um, man, it is, um, you know, you figure, I kind of thought they were going to have to hit their way through the conference tournament 
and they, and they pitch their way, but I, I really kind of think they're going to have to hit their way. You know, the other thing that sticks out, I don't know if you saw it, Miami's closer numbers are, like, really good. Right. Like, they have a closer with 11 saves and a 1.08 ERA in 68 strikeouts in 41 and two-third innings. So you don't see a dominant, dominant closer like that. They apparently have one. Now, their starting pitcher stats are not all that good. They're an offensive team. Like, they, they have, like, second amount of home runs in school so in school history. So I think Texas, to me, their offensive numbers look better than they – a lot of times – Texas teams are really good defensively, pitch really well, and they seem to do that as well. But this this, this seems to be a little more athletic, a little more offensive-minded Texas team. So I think the Cajuns are going to have to score some runs in either one. And even Maine, you know, I didn't, I don't follow Maine, and so I didn't know how long. They have been kind of down for their program. It's their first regional appearance in 12 years. But this is a team that they have the second most home runs in, in, um, in school history. No, the most home runs in school history and the second most stolen bases in school history. So they're putting up some pretty good numbers in their own right, and they have some starting pitchers with good numbers. So we'll, it'll be interesting to see how they compete. Well, it should be fun. I hope for your sake that the uh, weather is better than expected, and uh, we will uh, hopefully see you back here uh, next week earlier than uh, – well, I guess I guess you want it to be a decently long stay for the Cajuns to have won some games, but then again – um, don't want to be stuck out in Miami in hurricane weather. So good luck like, what, to you. What did they do? I mean, do you have it like, what did they do if they cancel like two days? I don't know. And, you know, actually, I think it was brought up last year where there's a situation in, in which if the regional can't be played at all, that the regional host moves on. I, I think that yeah. was like discussed yeah. last year. That, they ended up playing that is it. the case, yes. But so, yeah, you definitely hope that doesn't happen. And again, from the forecast, it doesn't sound like anything that dire is going to take place, but it does sound like you're going to have to be avoiding showers and probably a couple of delays here and there. But it'll well, be fun, so I'm good gonna, luck to uh, you. I took my and... blood pressure medicine already, <laughs> and I have it with me, so hopefully I'll get through it. All right. Well, thank you. All right. Take care. This is Footnotes on the game. 1037 Lafayette and 1041 Lake Charles. Southwest Louisiana's sports station. Your home for the LSU Tigers and Houston Astros. This is Footnotes. Live from the Evco Development Studios in Upper Lafayette on the game. 1037 Lafayette, 1041 Lake Charles. Southwest Louisiana's sports station. Welcome back to Footnotes here on the game. Dawson Isler again filling in for Kevin Foote. Uh, we're unable to get Lon at the moment, so we're going to actually pivot and talk a little bit more about the Houston Astros there because um, I had some thoughts, kind of more big picture, and, and Kevin and I just kind of broke down uh, the ending of the series with the Twins and yesterday's outing for Hunter Brown wasn't great, but as Kevin kind of explained there, there were some Certainly some hard-hit balls that, that uh, or, or excuse me, some non-hard-hit balls that didn't go his way that got through, and a lot of times that can kind of skew an outing, and sometimes it's just not your night. So, you know, moving forward with Hunter Brown, and I just wanted to kind of talk a little bit about the rotation in general here because, you know, what the Astros have right now is is honestly, I don't know if people really stop and realize how crazy it is what they've already accomplished in this season, and I don't want to get too, like, you know, hyperbolic here but they've already won 32 games in their first 55 
and they had not only their top two starting pitchers go down, uh, or two of their top three, rather, um, but they didn't even get a fourth one who they thought they were going to have to start the season. They never got him at all in Lance McCullers. Uh, and so, like, to then have guys, again, like, who even thought J.P. France was on the radar of being a legitimate starting option for them coming into the season? And so you have a guy like J.P. France step in and give you good innings. We've talked a lot. Brandon Belak, I mean, look, he's been a valuable pitcher in his time with the with, with the Astros. Different roles. He's come out of the bullpen. He's been a long relief guy. But I don't think anybody could have expected him to step into the number five spot in the rotation the way he has. And been, like, not just fine. He's been good. Like, he's been above average. Uh, and so, like, for Belak to step up uh, in addition to J.P. France, and that's all, again, with Urquidy and Garcia on the shelf and McCullers on the shelf, and now McCullers is a setback and he's not coming back, and Verlander departs in free agency. Like, all that has happened, and yet the Astros' starting pitchers have been one of the best staffs in the league. So that's just kind of like with, with what you get, and, and I know they've done it before with kind of the you know emergence of some of the free agents that they brought in. Charlie Morton kind of had a career revival in Houston. Um, he's not the only Justin Verlander to an extent. Let's not forget, like Verlander's last year in Detroit wasn't great, and there was questions when the Astros traded for Verlander. And again, this is this is five six years ago, of course, but there were legit concerns about whether Verlander had anything left in the tank. And he comes to Houston, and look what he's done since then. He's he's been back in Cy Young form. He's overcome, uh, you know, Tommy John again, like unbelievable circumstances, and been elite. In, this, in the back half of his career, once again. So I think that shows you kind of like they, the Astros have something figured out as far as pitching. And, you know, there were, of course, a lot of rumors at the time when, when the trash can scandal came out and people questioning things. But, I mean, you haven't really heard much. Like, the Astros just, they do something with their development. And it, and it starts in the minors because a guy like J.P. France wasn't highly sought after, had a decent college career, but I don't think, you know, the expectations were super high. And look what he's done. And you can also point to another guy that has local ties in Spencer Arigetti, who was, I mean, absolutely dominant, a 0.67 ERA. I think he ended up with in the month of May. Um, so they have more guys coming, presumably. And a lot of times the funny thing is the Astros have actually historically struggled to get their top picks to work out. Of course, we've, we've talked enough about Forrest Whitley this year. Mark Appel, that goes way back to one of their top picks who never panned, never panned out and kind of, you know, of course, that ended up being a whole different situation in its own right with the inability to sign him and everything that went down there. But Appel's career certainly didn't end up the way that it was once thought it was going to. So they've even been able to overcome some of their top, the guys that they were supposed to hit on, the guys that were supposed to be can't-miss prospects, haven't worked. And they've still found the, the J.P. Francis and the Spencer Arigettis of the world, along with, of course, their incredible international free agent recruiting abilities, um, where they found guys like Framber Valdez and and everyone else that you, you know in this rotation. So I, I just think that needs to kind of uh, be mentioned here with what the Astros are currently doing and what they're going to attempt to continue to do. Now, look, if if the news on Arkady is true and he's coming back sooner than expected, that kind of maybe replaces the idea of McCullers coming back. So that could be definitely a very good thing for you. Um, on the same token, the McCullers news is, is disheartening to me. Um, McCullers has always been a favorite of mine, of course, and, and certainly with Astros fans, what he did in the World Series way back when they won their first one in 17. Um, 
but since then, it's always been the what if with him. What if he could put together some healthy seasons? And that just, at this point in his career, I think it's to the point again where you just don't expect it. And that's unfortunate because I think he's a guy who who has never fully going to reach what he could have been, right? And, 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 and sometimes that happens. One of my favorite players in the world growing up was Grady Sizemore. And he's a guy whose career was left um, with a lot of what ifs. What if he'd have stayed healthy? Um, and and unfortunately, that's the way it goes in sports sometimes. So getting a little sidetracked with that thought, but overall, I think what the Astros starting rotation has done, and, and the bullpen, we haven't even talked about them right now, but they're they're up there as well. It's been nothing short of, of outstanding, and not only from the guys who you'd expect it from, but from the guys you didn't know. And let's not forget Hunter Brown is still a young guy. You don't always know that. That wasn't, a, you know, that wasn't written in, in stone that he was going to be this good this season even even coming off what he did down the stretch last year. Um, so that's also impressive. And a couple of rough outings for Hunter, but we're going to see if he can kind of get things back on track when he gets his next start. Kevin brought it up, too. They don't have an off day coming up. like, And they've played all this week. So this is kind of a stretch of the schedule where your pitching depth gets tested a little bit. So you're going to need some longer outings. And fortunately, like that's the other thing for me about J.P. France has been so impressive. Even when he hasn't been dominant, He's been able to give you length no matter what. He's been able to, even in his worst outing, he went over four innings, and he goes six innings the other night, giving up the four runs. So certainly excited to see what JP can do. But, I mean, Framber, without any doubt, at the top as the ace, then Hunter Brown behind him, and then, of course, you know, JP and what he's been able to do. There's There's just no shortage of impressive feats by the Astros starting rotation. And we will kind of see if they can continue to do what they've done so far um, which is hold this team together and hold these innings together while you wait on reinforcements that you hope you get back. Again, and the Astros aren't uh, the most forthcoming with their injury updates, so we'll see if this Urquidy situation um, comes to pass or not. But overall, I think they're in they're in a good spot, and um, I'm very, very happy. Again, I don't worry nearly as much as some Astros fans do about uh, games in May and even into June, but... Um, I think all things considered, you can't ask for much more. You're right there. Texas is you know, better than we thought they'd be, but you're still right there with a chance to run them down, and it's going to be a long summer, and um, it should be an exciting one for the Astros. So we've got to take a timeout right here, but we're going to come back, kind of shift gears a little bit. You know, I've got a couple of more things planned for today. My regional talk is going to be um, heavy the rest of the show. We'll talk a little bit about the Baton Rouge Regional and what LSU has and what Tulane can maybe do. Um, as well as the two other teams in that regional being Oregon State and Sam Houston. We'll discuss that next right here on Footnotes. This is Footnotes on the game. 1037 Lafayette and 1041 Lake Charles, Southwest Louisiana's sports station. Your home for the LSU Tigers and Houston Astros. Alexa and the game make a great team. Do yourself a favor and enable the Alexa skill, the game Southwest Louisiana, so you can keep it locked in to the game. 1037 Lafayette and 1041 Lake Charles, wherever you go. Welcome back into Footnotes right here on 103.7 The Game, Lafayette, 1041 Lake Charles, Southwest Louisiana Sports Station. Dawson Iserlow once again here filling in for Kevin Foote today on Footnotes as Kevin we just spoke with in the first segment, or in the second segment rather, of this hour. He is currently in the airport trying to get to Coral Gables to cover the Cajuns playing baseball. And um, 
We're going to talk about that regional a little bit more. Some of my thoughts, a couple of the deeper numbers that I've kind of pulled out of that one, um, and some things to expect coming up in the next hour before I get to my regional superlatives. I wanted to do a segment each here on the Baton Rouge Regional and the Coral Gables Regional, the ones that, of course, most uh, people around here focus a little bit more on, of course, with their teams in them. Um, But then I'm going to get to some of the more interesting storylines of the regionals that I'm interested in overall and just kind of, again, kind of talk about some of those things and and hand out superlatives in the forms of, um, you know, just giving you reasons to watch some of those other ones because I think sometimes people will go, well, this regional doesn't really impact my team, so it's not as interesting. I think maybe that's uh, not quite the best approach with some of these because there's going to be some storylines to go on. But let's talk about the Baton Rouge Regional here. LSU, it's been an interesting season for a couple of reasons. They came in with a lot of hype, rightfully so. Um, You know, a guy who came in in Paul Skeens who was a transfer as a starting pitcher from Air Force. And, you know, we certainly heard good things throughout the offseason. We certainly expected him to be very good and and maybe even expected him to be an ace at the front of this rotation. But I don't know if anybody expected him to be as dominant as he's been um, because he has been a guy who's put himself now in the conversation of being the top overall pick in the draft. They're very close to it. And that's not, I don't think, what everyone was thinking going in, right? So there, you know, that whole storyline happens. The lineup we knew was loaded. They bring in Tommy White to already kind of add to what's an incredible lineup with Dylan Cruz, maybe the best player in college baseball, another candidate for that number one overall pick. And they're pretty dominant early on. They're the number one team coming in, and they just looked like it. And they pitched pretty well. They played a non-conference schedule that didn't test them a ton, but there were some good teams in there and some teams that were better than we even imagined they'd be, Iowa certainly being one. When they lose that game to Iowa... I think a lot of people said, what's going on here? And then it turns out, well, Iowa's pretty good. Iowa won 42 games in their regional team. So um, a lot of that happens. Then the bullpen issues, look, they lost a couple of guys. I mean, Chase Shores, Garrett Edwards, like those are legit injuries. And we've talked about it with the Cajuns, the same thing with Dylan Toit and uh, Blake McGeehee and a couple other guys. It's tough to overcome that if you're anybody. Even though you're the number one team in the country, that doesn't mean you have seven or eight great options when it comes to starting pitching and bullpen guys. So some of their struggles that took place midseason towards the back half, I think a lot of it's just personnel-wise. Like, they just didn't have enough guys. And and I, I know sometimes fans can kind of be frustrated by that and say, well, the next guy up should be just as good, and it's just not that easy sometimes, right? So anyway, with all that being said, they have this kind of rise to the top. They're at the top for so long, and then they struggle a little bit and they kind of fall off the radar a little bit of being the top one or two teams in the country, but I almost think that could help them in this regional. Like, I really do. I think coming in as the number five national seed, you're not the number one. You don't have the target on your back. Again, the history for number one seeds in the NCAA baseball tournament hasn't been great of late. I don't think that's a curse or anything like that, but I do think maybe there's a little bit to it of being that team that everybody says, hey, we want to go out and beat the number one team. We want to be the, the, the team that takes number one down. So you don't have any of that pressure and you're the number five seed. But what you do have is a really intriguing crosstown rivalry game in the opener of the regional, and that's against Tulane. The Green Wave 19-40, and 40, we talked with it on RP3 and Company. We talked about it with Corey Glore, the voice of the Green Wave. Um, what they did in Clearwater last week was just in- incredible, um, and they're playing with nothing to lose. And I think that's dangerous now. I thought about this a good bit. Do I think Tulane has enough to challenge LSU even with that type of mentality? Probably not. Uh, probably not. But 
here's where you can get into issues, and we've heard a lot of speculation about who LSU's going to throw. Just to keep everyone updated, Jay Johnson is not going to announce a starting pitcher. We talked to Bill Franquez on RP3 and Company, and he said he doesn't know who they're throwing. Jay Johnson will announce it 90 minutes before first pitch. So we don't know who it's going to be until tomorrow. The assumption is that they're not going to throw Skeens against Tulane. They're going to save him for Oregon State or whoever, Sam Houston State, whoever wins and advances in that second game, or maybe they even have thoughts of saving him for the third game. I would guess they throw him in the second game. But I would probably throw Ty Floyd against Tulane. And I I, I know a lot of people want to save Ty Floyd for that potential regional championship game. They want to throw Thatcher Hurd. They want to throw Ackenhausen and maybe throw a bullpen game against Tulane. I get that, but I would say this. The LSU bullpen... It started to put together, pick up the pieces, so to speak, get get itself some more confidence with the performance it had in the SEC tournament. Tulane can hit. That That's never been a question. Even when they were losing a lot of games, they could swing the bats. They just didn't have it on the mound. If you throw somebody who struggles, if it's Thatcher Hurd, if it's you know anybody else, and they really struggle early, and Tulane gets some confidence and starts putting runs on the board, they could score 10-12 runs on you. They really could. So... In my opinion, you throw Ty Floyd, who's been you know as reliable as anyone outside of Skeens, and you make sure you win that first game, and then you figure it out from there. Look, if you and then if you throw Skeens in game two, and then you piece it together after that, I would much rather be in the two and zero situation, going, okay, I have to find a way to piece it together in one of these next two games, than somehow letting Tulane stay in this game and score a bunch of runs and outscore you. But we will see what happens. That's it for hour number one here on Footnotes. Another hour, please stay tuned. Broadcasting live from the Delta Media Studios in Upper Lafayette. Two hours of sports talk like none other. Footnotes with your host, Kevin Foote. Welcome into our number two here of Footnotes. Dawson Iserlow filling in for Kevin Foote as he is on his way to Coral Gables for the Coral Gables Regional in which the Louisiana Raging Cajuns will be the number three seed. They will face Texas in the first game of that regional tomorrow. Um, And that's what we're going to talk about right here to start this second hour. As a reminder, we're broadcasting live from the Evco Development Studios here in Upper Lafayette. Evco Development is a civil construction company that specializes in new multifamily construction. I think the Cajuns did not get the best possible draw they could have gotten. Now, in no way could they have been, cho- it's, it's you know, beggars can't be choosers. The Cajuns were lucky in some regards to have gotten into the field at all. So uh, I'm not suggesting that this was, you know, r- they were wronged or anything like that. But I've heard some people say this is a really winnable regional, this and that, and I, I kind of disagree. Now, not to say it's not winnable for the Cajuns. It is. They're a good team. As long as you have, uh, you know, a, a capable ball club in a regional, you have a chance to win it. And in addition to that, the fact is true. They don't. They're not facing one of the real dominant teams in the country. There's no. This is not Wake Forest Regional, which we're going to talk about a little bit coming up. This is not, you know, going to Baton Rouge even and facing a team that knows you and you beat them earlier in the year. But LSU would probably have a lot of, um, you know, motivation to not only, of course, win their regional, but to beat the Louisiana Raging Cajuns, given how that game went for them. Um, so in that regard, yes, you're facing a team in Miami as a host site, um, and Texas as a two seed that aren't the top of the top, the most elite of the elite. However, Miami's really, really good. And I got to watch Miami play a good bit. 
course, my last couple years in Tallahassee with Florida State and following their baseball program pretty close. Um, that's a great rivalry in the ACC, and Miami is really, really good, and this year is no exception to that. So I don't know if it's this like golden opportunity for the Cajuns. However, I do think you have some things going for you, and one thing, and I've already said it a couple times and I asked Kevin about it, I think it's a real legitimate advantage to both the Cajuns and the Texas Longhorns to be playing the first game of this regional. The weather is not supposed to be good in Miami. Um, th- that's that's pretty simple. It's it's going to be potentially tropical disturbance-like weather patterns throughout the weekend, specifically on Friday and Saturday. The updated forecast has a 70% chance of rain on Friday, a 70% chance of rain on Saturday, thunderstorms throughout both of those days, right? So these games are going to have to be gotten in around the forecast. And therefore, when you take a look at the schedule, the way it worked out, Miami, of course, the host teams have the opportunity to play the early games that they want, but they gave the 1 o'clock slot to the Cajuns in Texas. Now, maybe you think there's some other factors for that. One, Miami maybe wants a better home crowd. So on a Friday, of course, where people are working and things like that, you want to play the late games, people have a chance to go support your program. I understand that. Also, by the way, Miami's usually pretty hot this time of year, so you do maybe trying to stay out of the sun a little bit more if you're if you're able to do so. Um, as it ends up, we might not see a whole lot of sun in Miami this weekend because of the weather forecast. But my whole point in this is if you get your game in, and look, if you're the Cajuns and you're able to beat Texas, which is no, no easy task, but if you're able to do that, and then the weather rolls in maybe late afternoon, evening, and that game gets washed out, maybe you start playing... Of course, doubleheaders aren't scheduled in these types of regionals unless you're in an elimination situation or if weather comes into play. Because then Miami and Maine could potentially have to play the first game on Saturday morning and then play again on Saturday night. That's a possibility in an elimination situation. Now, that's again, all that's kind of projecting ahead. But I do think, given the forecast, it's a legitimate possibility. And I think maybe that, you know, the Longhorns and the Cajuns have a bit of a chance to uh, to take advantage of the weather forecast. And even if that game does get played, but let's say Miami and Maine play deep into the night, right, with a bunch of rain delays, that's still a bit of a disadvantage to have to turn around and one of those teams, whoever loses the Miami-Maine game, has to play at 11 a.m. Uh, Central time, 12 p.m. local time over there in Miami on, on Saturday morning. So that's something to keep in mind. Uh, we did say this, and, I, and I'll, you know, I'll, I'll put it this way. The Cajuns have two blue bloods in this regional uh, against them. And I think that's a fair thing to say about Miami and Texas baseball. And we've already talked to Kevin about the 63 combined World Series appearances amongst this regional. 55 of those are just between Texas and Miami. Seven of them for the main Black Bears, who, I mean, have a storied program in their own right. Most of that success coming in the 80s. And then the one appearance for the Cajuns in the World Series. So this is not, these are teams that expect to be here, but these specific teams, again, haven't been as dominant as plenty of those Texas and Miami teams in the past. So that's another kind of storyline that's in play here. Um, I think, look, the fact that, you know, Texas has a couple of big key relievers that aren't pitching, like that also plays into this a lot. And, you know, they do, look, they still have two legit starters. I expect them to throw their ace against the Cajuns, but their number two option isn't far behind. Um, so that's something to also kind of keep in mind there. Like, you're going to have to beat a very good pitcher on Friday, no doubt about it, um, with what Texas throws. But Coach David Pierce did confirm that Heston Toll and David Shaw, Toll's a right-hander, Shaw's a left-hander, uh, they are both going to be unavailable for this regional. They are done for the season. 
um, with some injuries there. So, you know, you never want to see something like that. And again, that's that's this time of year, though, right? LSU's dealt with it. The Cajuns have dealt with it. And now Texas does as well. Heston Toll had 23 and two-thirds innings pitch in 19 appearances, had a 1.90 ERA and one save this season. David Shaw, the left-hander, in 32 innings pitched across 26 appearances, a 3.09 ERA and one save as well. Um, that's two of their best guys, and they're unavailable. Um, told their best ERA of any of their relievers by a wide margin as well. Um, that's a factor. So I think that's another thing to, to sit there and look at when you get to the back end. Texas is going to be throwing some guys, maybe not guys that they don't trust. They still have some guys back there, but some guys that haven't always been the highest of high leverage relievers for them. So maybe a situation where the Cajuns, if they're able to get through the starter, can have some opportunities there. I think another thing, look, and, and Lucas Gordon, by the way, is that ace that I mentioned. He's got a 2.55 ERA, a 6-1 and record. Um, but Leveron Johnson Jr., right behind him, a 7-3 and record with a 2.82. Like, those two guys are both legit top-tier arms. Um, I did sit, take a look at the numbers a little bit more. And if there's something you want to look at if you're the Cajuns, if it is Lucas Gordon uh, who starts against you, he didn't finish the season nearly as well as he started it. Um, now, Part of that's Big 12 play. Big 12 schedule's pretty tough. Big 12's a pretty good baseball conference. I believe number three in the RPI, either number three or number four. Um, one spot ahead of the Sun Belt, I think, if they are number four. Against TCU back on April 29th, he gave up four earned runs. Now, he did go eight innings in that game, so not a bad outing, but not dominant. Four and two-thirds against Kansas with five earned runs, so that's probably his worst start of the year. That was back on May 5th. They had a non-conference start for him against San Jose State. He went only five innings. He gave up five hits and two earned runs. So good, but not, you know, not dominant. He was very good against West Virginia in his second-to-last start. And then against Kansas in the uh, Big 12 tournament, he went five innings, seven hits, two runs, both of them earned. So hasn't quite been. I mean, look, some of those games towards the beginning of the season, he was lights out. And I think that's just something to kind of keep in mind. Maybe you have an opportunity to get on a guy who hasn't been quite as dominant in the second half of the season as he was in the first. Um, but look, he's a very talented pitcher, and you know he's a left-hander as well. That's something that's kind of in play here. The Cajuns, they have more right-handed bats than left-handed, um, but not by much. They've got some real Connor Higgs, Carson Rockefort, C.J. Willis. Like they they start lefties as well. So you know, can the guys like Marshock? Does it give them a big advantage? Um, when you're talking about Marshock and Heath Hood and those guys trying to hit against a, a left-handed pitcher, um, but then even John Taylor, that's another lefty in there. So all that's into consideration um, when you face Texas. And then they've got the big right-hander, Lebron Johnson Jr. He's 6'4". Um, he also hasn't been quite as great as of late, but he's uh, he's been pretty solid. Hasn't given up more than three earned runs since April the 8th, and he's only given up more than three earned runs in a start one time this season. Um, the same can be said. Uh, Lucas Gordon has only given up more than three earned runs twice, and those were in those back-to-back starts that I mentioned against TCU in Kansas. So um, two elite arms that you'll have to beat. When you look at who the Cajuns are going to throw in that game or in this regional, Jackson Nezu's first up. And I brought this point up earlier in the week, and I'll bring it up again here now. We take a look at stats and what I'm doing right here. Like, I've seen Texas play a couple of times this season, but I haven't seen Lucas Gordon start multiple games and watch the entire game. I won't pretend like I have. So I'm looking at numbers and kind of things I've heard and seen combined with a little bit of game action that I've seen. 
And that's kind of what Texas fans and media are likely doing about the Cajuns. And if you looked at Jackson Nessu's numbers, you wouldn't think he was that good. Like, no, no shortage about it. And we've discussed that. That's also part of college baseball as a whole. Like, when you play 60 games, you know, you take a look at MLB stats for a full season when it's over 162. Like, you have a pretty good idea of what that guy is, right? Well, when you only play 50-something games in college baseball, those numbers can be certainly deceiving. And I think with Jackson Nezu, that's a perfect example of that. Because his first couple of starts were not good at all. And a couple of bad outings, not only at the beginning, but then kind of filtered in throughout the season, make his numbers look pretty pedestrian. He's 9-5 and five record-wise. He has a 6-1-4 ERA. Like, a 6-1-4. That is not good. And yet he's the Cajuns' ace, right? And he's the guy who's going to get the ball to start the regional. And if you're a Cajuns fan, and if you're me, you feel pretty good about him getting the ball in game one, you know? Um, but so that's something I just want to keep in mind. Sometimes you're going to see a guy, and you see it in the conference tournaments as well, you'll see a guy come in from the bullpen and they'll go, this guy's coming in, he's got a 6.75 ERA. Why is this guy in the game? Well, maybe that ERA doesn't tell the whole story. So I would keep that in mind as you're watching these games and, and certainly for the Cajuns, you would hope that Jackson Nezu is the guy that we've seen of late as opposed to the guy that we saw at times. Um, and I make that important caveat. You know, even when you just narrow it down to conference games, Nezu was 5-5 five and five with a 5-4-6. Still not great, right? Um, so that's, that's always something to keep in mind. But that's the other thing that we'll talk about with ERAs and things like that. JT Etheridge looked like a shutdown back-end closer, like big league stuff guy. In, in Montgomery, and in conference games this season, he only made five appearances and pitched three innings. In all of conference play in the regular season, he had an ERA of nine. And he shut the door in Montgomery multiple times. So, kind of use, you know, stats can be used to, to have a good idea of how a matchup is going to go, but always remember that they are just a description of what's happened prior and not an explanation or a prediction of what's going to happen in the future. So I think that's something to keep in mind when it comes to the Coral Gables Regional. Uh, you know, look, a couple of X-Factor guys as I look into this offense for the Cajuns, this lineup is as deep as it's been all year. I love where they are with it. I think Connor Higgs is a guy who, you know, look, early in the year was not in the everyday lineup. We heard some things in fall ball and we expected him to be in the mix but didn't know how much he was going to play. He started playing a lot more, and then he kind of never took, you know, ne once he got that everyday opportunity for a couple of weeks, he never gave it back. And he's been in the not only an everyday guy, but in the middle of your lineup. He cooled off a little bit, had some big hits in Montgomery, but I'm looking for Higgs to maybe have a couple of big moments in this regional. I think it's going to take a couple of guys that you're really not expecting the big production from. Another guy, look, that I just love in these moments is CJ Willis. And, uh, CJ, uh, look, his career path, it, its um, he didn't take the, the easiest path, right? He doesn't have a direct line of, of signing as a big-time recruit and staying with one team. He went to LSU. It didn't work out. He comes to the Cajuns. He battles. He wasn't even an everyday guy for the Cajuns, and he wasn't even an everyday guy this year. Most of that was due to a back injury that took place early in the season, but every time you need a big swing and C.J. Willis is up, it feels like he gets it. And he had that big two-run homer against Coastal in the in, in the Sun Belt tournament. So he bats down in the 8-9 spot. He lengthens that lineup immensely since he's been back. So I'm really looking for him. And if I've got to throw a wild card in the mix, Matt Deggs has stuck with his nine guys. He's felt good about it. And as a coach, you have to love the ability to do so. In the past month, really, 
he's played his same nine guys. And we know the guys that are going to start. Like, it's it's really not all that complicated for the Cajuns lineup. It hasn't been officially announced, right? But it's going to be DeBarge, Hood, Higgs, Marshock, Julian Brock, Rockefort, John Taylor, Will Vayon, and C.J. Willis. That's going to be your starting nine almost without a doubt, unless there's something unforeseen with an injury. But if you need a guy off the bench, and if you're going to call to a guy, Ben Robichaux is a guy who had some moments this year. And he started to struggle towards the end, and of course they went back, and that's why you've kind of seen C.J. Willis and Will Vayon back in that lineup every day. Um, but for the year, Robichaux really had some moments where he was pretty productive. So I think a guy who comes into the postseason hitting two thirty-five. He does have three homers, 11 RBIs, but 26 walks. He can find ways to get on base, an on-base percentage of 423 that actually ranks near the tops of this team. Maybe he gets a spot start, but maybe he gets a big pinch hit opportunity in this regional. And I think he's a young guy. You know, is he ready for a moment like this? We'll see. But uh, I think Ben Robichaux could maybe give you something off the bench if you're Matt Deggs and the Louisiana Raging Cajuns. It's going to be exciting. I think, look, I'm treating it as bonus baseball. I'm, I'm trying not to have too high expectations coming into the regional this year because I think it was incredible what this team even did to get to this point. Um, so that's kind of some, you know, a way I can watch these games as a fan, right, or as someone covering it is tempering my expectations for what the Cajuns are going to do. I know it's a daunting task with Miami and Texas in the regional and even Maine, who's a pretty solid four seed, but it's fun. It's fun that we're still talking Louisiana Rage of Cajun Baseball on June the 1st, and we get to talk about it at least for a few more days. So all that should be exciting. Hopefully the weather at least allows this regional to get played. Again, we brought up the idea, and I, I really don't even want to discuss it, but there is a scenario in which Miami advances just because the regional can't be played as the regional host site. Um, that's a long ways away, and I'm hoping that doesn't take place. But um, all things considered, it's going to be fun. And uh, Kevin Foote's hopefully going to have a good time in Coral Gables as much as uh, the weather and his plane excursions allow him to do so. So we got to take a timeout, but when we come back, I talked about it a lot. I'm going to get to it. My regional superlatives. What Which regionals am I looking out for and why? That'll be next right here on Footnotes. This is Footnotes on the game. 1037 Lafayette and 1041 Lake Charles. Southwest Louisiana's sports station. Your home for the LSU Tigers and Houston Astros. A recent survey discovered that game listeners prefer our station than going to the dentist. Take that, dental hygiene. This is The Game. 1037 Lafayette and 1041 Lake Charles. Southwest Louisiana's sports station. Welcome back into Footnotes. Right here on the game, Dawson Eiserlo filling in for Kevin Foote, who is on his way to cover the Coral Gables Regional. We just talked a lot about that Coral Gables Regional in the last segment. I kind of gave some of my thoughts about what the Cajuns have to do, some of the inherent advantage and disadvantages given the situation, the circumstances, who they're going to face, and what kind of weather issues they might face as well. So now it is time to kind of talk about a project I've been working on since the regionals came out and everything was announced on Monday. Um, I've mentioned this a lot, but college baseball is one of my favorite sports to follow. Followed it um, since I was pretty young. Used to go to a ton of two-lane baseball games, had a family friend who played for him, and that kind of got me into it. Um, and then, of course, going to school at UL and just became more of a UL uh, you know, follower of, of, of their college baseball program and Florida State the same way. They have a super rich history um, in that. So 
Like, I love this time of year, and I specifically love the regionals. It's just there's such a time. Everybody's got a shot, and we heard Matt Deck say this earlier in the week. Everyone's on a level playing field at this point. Everybody, if you're in, you're in, um, and that's the, you know that's that, right? You, you have a chance to go out and win every game you play um, from this point on. You don't have to chase RPI points. There, there's no style points for winning or losing these games. Um, if you make four or five errors in a game, but you find a way to win it, then that's it. You're, you're potentially moving on, right? So I love that aspect of this week, and I wanted to kind of help people out in case you're wondering, man, there's so many. There's 16 of these regional sites. Like, I don't even know where to begin outside of watching the Cajuns or watching the Tigers, maybe the Colonels and Nichols or the Green Wave of Tulane. Like, other than those schools, what is there to watch? What is there to tune in for? So I've kind of compiled some numbers, some different things, and given some names to some of these regionals, some superlatives, if you will. Um, and I'll start with probably my favorite regional of them all, and that's Stillwater. I mentioned this one already yesterday. I've got a couple of names for it. Number one is the Fireworks Regional, because you're going to see offense. That's It's simple as that. It's plain as that. So I'll call it the Fireworks Regional for that reason. I've also got Pure Chaos as a superlative, the pure chaos regional for Stillwater. And then the lastly, I have it called the deepest regional. I really think this is an absolutely brutal draw for Oklahoma State. Um, and now it's easy to see that that Oral Roberts is the is the top four seed as far as wins is concerned. They have 46 wins this season. Um, and I've already kind of mentioned, like, it's different in the NCAA basketball tournament where there's four 16 seeds, right? In this situation, there's 16 four seeds. So you have a much wider range of teams that are, you know, quote unquote, the worst team in their regional, as opposed to when it's a 16 seed. We know, hey, it, it happened last year and it's happened a couple of times in history. But for the most part, those one seeds are going to dominate. We've seen a four seed win the entire College World Series in Fresno State back in 08. So um, I think not all four seeds are created equally, and Oral Roberts specifically is a very, very good and dangerous team to be a number four seed. Oh, by the way, they played Oklahoma State twice in the regular season. They beat them both times. Um, Kevin Foote would certainly say maybe that works against Oral Roberts because Oklahoma State is going to be prepared and maybe the Piper is going to pay him back in some regards. I told RP3 I wasn't going to bring the Piper up on this whole episode because, you know, it's what Foote would want me to do, so I didn't want to do it, but I did it there. So, oh, well. Last year, just to get back to Stillwater here, last year there were 44 runs scored in a single game in that regional. Oklahoma State beat Missouri State 29-15 to in a baseball game. There were 148 runs scored total in that regional a year ago. And there were 21 runs scored per game across the seven games of the regionals. There was 148 total runs scored. So clearly Stillwater is a park that's, uh, you know, <laughs> lends itself to some offense. No no questions there. And you have some of the best offensive teams in the country in this regional. Like, I think that's, it's almost like, I don't know if the committee, you know, really like looks at any of these things sometimes, but like, is it is it coincidence that once again, they sent four of the best offenses in the country to Stillwater to battle it out? Uh, O.L. Roberts has 88 home runs hit in the team, and I, I, I did go over the, some of these numbers yesterday, so I'll be quick with it. Every player in their everyday lineup has at least four homers. Um, you know, you go down to Dallas Baptist, they have 127 stolen bases and 109 total home runs. Two players on their team have more than 20 homers. Two. And then Oklahoma State, by the way, they've hit 104 homers and have a 302 team batting average, and they're the regional host, the best team overall in this regional. And not to forget Washington, who hits 296 as a club and maybe is the quote-unquote worst offensive team out of this four and is still pretty good swinging the bats. So I think Stillwater's just going to be exciting. 
Uh, so that's the first one I wanted to kind of get to. How about this one? The quote, they're too, they're just too good to lose twice regional. And I look, I considered LSU being uh, this, this, this title. I considered it being the Baton Rouge regional um, because I do think to an extent LSU might be too good to lose two games in that one specifically. But the reason I didn't is just I've seen the bullpen meltdown a couple too many times. I still think pretty confidently LSU wins that regional. And honestly, I don't even think it goes to Game 7. I think they sweep it. I think they sweep it 3-0. and But I've seen the bullpen meltdown, so there's a, I can see the scenario in which they have struggles in the bullpen and Oregon State beats them, or even a team like Sam Houston who can really score finds a way to outscore them. So I gave it to Wake Forest because... Look, I just think they are too good to get beat twice in a regional. Like I, they're so good, and and hey, we have to say the one seats have gone down. So this is certainly you know not with a hundred percent certainty, but Wake Forest has the best ERA in the country. How about this too? By more than half a run, ERA is an average of runs allowed across the entire season. Right? You're not supposed to have that big of a gap. Their ERA is under three. They're the only team in the country who has an ERA under three. Um, this regional overall, by the way, I have a couple other superlatives for it. I called it the runs will be hard to come by regional, but then I don't know if that's really true. So I also called it the conflicting styles regional, and I think that's the one I'll stick with, along with the they're just too good to lose twice, which is, of course, referring to the host team in Wake Forest. All four teams in this regional are top 125 in the country in ERA, which, remember, 295 Division I teams, so that's, that's pretty good. But three of them are in the top 50. Wake Forest is number one, and Northeastern, who's the three seed in this regional, is the number two team ERA in the country. George Mason comes in at number 49, and they're the four seed. So, like, there's some teams that have some really good arms. But, on the same token, you have the fifth-ranked team and the eighth-ranked team in runs scored in Maryland and Wake Forest. So, it also kind of is this contrasting situation where I think these these teams have some top-tier arms, but they've also got really, really good pitching and, or excuse me, really good hitting um, and, and, and the ability to score offensively, which Wake is, it's, it's unreal how good they've been. Again, the ACC is the second best conference in the country by RPI this year by a pretty wide margin, too. Like, it's pretty clear cut the SEC is number one and it's pretty clear cut the ACC is number two. And Wake Forest dominated in the ACC this year, the number one ERA in the country, and it's not close. And they're also in the top 10 in runs scored per game. Like, that's just not something you see every year. Rhett Lauder is about as good as they come as top-tier aces, so that also tends to, you know, the reason that I think they're just too good to lose twice. But I don't think they got the best draw they could have gotten because Maryland's really, really good offensively and can really score, and Northeastern won 44 games this year, has a top-tier pitching staff, the number 2 ERA pitching staff in the country, and also is pretty decent offensively as well. So, like... Wake didn't get the best draw for the number one overall seed, in my opinion. I think that's interesting to take a look at, and, and that's one that I'm really going to be kind of glued to throughout the weekend as well. So that's that's the first half of my superlatives for the regionals. I have a couple more that I'm really keeping a close eye on, and we'll talk about that when we come back from this timeout. Once again, you're listening to Footnotes right here on The Game. This is Footnotes on the game, 1037 Lafayette and 1041 Lake Charles, Southwest Louisiana's sports station, your home for the LSU Tigers and Houston Astros. This is Footnotes, live from the Evco Development Studios in Upper Lafayette on the game, 1037 Lafayette, 1041 Lake Charles, Southwest Louisiana's sports station. 
Welcome back into Footnotes. Dawson Isolo in for Kevin Foote on a Thursday in which there is a lot going on in the world of sports, and there's going to be even more going on this weekend. We've already touched on the NBA Finals. I gave some thoughts about the Denver Nuggets and the Miami Heat, who are going to play game one tonight at 7.30 over there in the Mile High City. Already talked about some Houston Astros with Kevin Foote, who was live from the airport this morning, uh, talking about a series loss to the Minnesota Twins, but overall the the brighter picture in the long run. And then I kind of also gave some thoughts about how the Astros have just been able to develop starting pitching, and I think we take it for granted a little bit, but it's it's been unbelievable, and they've been able to do it without spending the type of money that some teams have in that regard. And um, how I think that you know if they're going to continue to be successful moving forward, it just continues to go back to how good their player development and you know their scouting department and everything like that has been for them. And then after that, it's been about college baseball regionals, trying to get you set up for what should be a really exciting weekend. Both the Tigers and the Cajuns will be playing in regionals in different regionals as well, which I know some fans are very happy about that. Um, the fact that they each get a chance to potentially both advance and move on to Supers, so that is certainly um, pretty cool to see. I gave some regional superlatives in the last segment. I have a couple of more, just a couple more regionals that I think are are just interesting for a variety of reasons, um, and, and I've put together some numbers to kind of back some of that. The next one I have is called, and I called it three is a magic number regional, and it's the regional I think the three seed has the best chance to advance. Of all the three seeds in these regionals, the three seeds are always interesting because they're predominantly made up of the last at-large teams to get in, such as the Raging Cajuns over in Coral Gables, but also some of the really good conference tournament champions who maybe play in RPI leagues that aren't as high overall, so they don't get at-large bids, but they're a lot better than some of the conference champions who get in um, who would have had no chance to get in otherwise, like teams like Tulane and, to an extent, Nichols over in the Southland Conference. I think Conway's fascinating because Coastal Carolina, you know, they've I've seen them play a ton. Some of these teams I've mentioned I haven't seen play as many games, like Texas and Miami. I've had to go back and try to do some research about them and maybe see some previous situations with them. Coastal, I've seen play a lot. I've seen them play not only, what, five times against the Cajuns? No, six times against the Cajuns now, um, in which those two teams split the six games, three and three record, with the Cajuns winning two in the conference tournament to kind of seal the deal on their RPI opportunity to get an at-large bid. But I've seen them play other Sunbelt series. I've seen them play midweek games. I watched them play Wake Forest. I watched them play East Carolina. Um, I've seen this team play a lot, and... I look. I support the Sun Belt a lot. I know some some people like to give give me stuff about being kind of a supporter of the uh, Group of Five leagues and leagues that don't always get as much coverage. Um, so I'm usually the first one to support Sun Belt teams. I'll be honest. I didn't think Coastal was deserving of hosting a regional. Now, resume wise, they were, and so for that reason, I'm happy they are. But watching them play, I test stuff. I didn't see it with them, and I didn't see it when they played the Cajuns six times. I didn't see it in a couple of the movie games I watched. I know they can swing the bats, and their RPI was super high, largely due to the fact, which I've gone into this, that the Carolinas had a banner year, and there were great teams in North Carolina, South Carolina, all over, and Coastal played most of those teams in the midweek and beat a lot of them. Um, So I don't take away from midweek games. They matter a lot, but they didn't do it in series, and I don't know if their weekend pitching staff, now they have some depth within their pitching staff. They've got some guys like Eikhoff who pitched great against the Cajuns a couple of times, but I don't know if they have it in their 
top guys who, in a regional, you think those guys have to do it. But who else is in this regional? How about Duke, who's really not playing well down the stretch? Duke limped home in the ACC. They lost six of their last seven games, including a loss to Gardner-Webb, who's outside the top 150 in the RPI. So as a two-seed, I don't really like Duke's opportunity coming into this regional either. So that leads me to the UNC Wilmington Seahawks, the third seed in the regional, the winners of the Colonial Athletic Conference, who actually played a pretty hard schedule in their own right, and largely the same reason as Coastal. They had a ton of midweek games against teams in the state of North and South Carolina that had really, really good seasons. UNCW comes in winning six in a row. We already talked about Northeastern a little bit earlier, a team that won 44 games this year. The Seahawks went 4-1 and one against them. So I think they're a team that comes in playing better baseball right now than Coastal is, who lost twice in a row to the Cajuns to lose the conference tournament, playing better baseball than Duke is right now, who, again, limped home in the ACC and just did not play well in the ACC tournament. And then the four seed is a team in Ryder who is one of those conference champion automatic berth teams who I just don't think is going to have the depth to get through a regional like this. So I like the Seahawks. I, I, I really like them as a three seed to potentially move on. Um, and, you know, I really, I, I think Coastal, they if they win this regional, it's going to be, be because the offense outscored teams. But I just see situations in which they're able to get outslugged at times and maybe a couple of pitchers step up for the Seahawks and get it done. Um, another one, the something has to give regional is what I called it. Auburn, man, that regional has teams that are red hot, all four of them not just the host team, the Auburn Tigers. Auburn hasn't lost a series since mid-April. Um, they have series wins in that stretch over South Carolina and LSU, two of the top, you know, two of the regional host teams as well, and two of the better teams in the SEC. Southern Miss is the two-seed over there. They haven't lost a series since April 23rd, and that was on the road against Coastal in that ballpark in which Coastal just scored a ton of runs. Before that, they hadn't lost a series since March 19th. They won the Sunbelt Tournament. They only threw their ace, Tanner Hall, in the first game of that tournament. They didn't throw him against the Cajuns in the championship game. So they didn't even have to use, quote-unquote, their best guy to win the Sunbelt Championship. They're red hot, and Southern Miss isn't a team I'd want to play, but neither is Auburn as the one seed. Samford, they're the number three seed. They also haven't lost a series since April 23rd. In that stretch, they won a series over a Big 12 opponent in Kansas in a non-conference kind of mix-in late in the year. Uh, so they're a team that's playing well. And the four-seed Penn hasn't lost a series since March 26th, and they've only lost two series the entire season. They're an Ivy League team. They get started a little later than some other teams. The only two series they've lost this season are to Harvard and to South Carolina, a regional host. So Penn is another four-seed. I think their record's 32-14. and 14. They've played a lot less games than most of the teams across the country. I mean, we were talking about the Cajuns have played, what, 62 games? And Penn's only played 46. But they swept the Ivy League tournament. They scored at least eight runs in their last seven games overall. So that's a regional in which a team like Penn comes in playing really, really well as a four seed. But at the same time, Sanford's playing well. Southern Miss and Auburn are both red hot. So something's got to give in that regional, and I don't know what it's going to be. Um, I early on wanted to pick Southern Miss to win the Auburn regional. I feel like they're playing really, really well, and they're super deep. But it is at Auburn, and... They're just not a team you want to run into right now. So my gut tells me Auburn pulls through Pulls through there. Um, they have the, the depth that just got through a gauntlet in the SEC and, again, at the end played their best baseball. But all four teams are playing well. So, I, like, I think, I think it gets fun um, when it comes to the Auburn Regional. 
The last one I've got for you is the new kids on the block regional. It's Terre Haute and Indiana State. They just haven't been there before. That's why I called it the new kids on the block. They they haven't been a regional host very often, if at all, in their history. Um, they played in regional back in 2019 and made it to the regional championship, but they've never had to do it with the team that's got the target on their back. Now, there was certainly some back and forth about whether they deserved a regional host site or not. I'm perfectly fine with it. Their RPI was way up there. They've had a great season. Um, but they've got a couple of teams in here. Iowa Iowa's also a team that's not necessarily used to being a dominant baseball program. They're in the Big Ten, but they haven't had the success long term. They are not a team that's used to going and hosting regionals either. And they're the number two seed. But the team that I think is really dangerous in this situation, the number three seed is the North Carolina Tar Heels. Of course, they are a what I would consider a blue blood in the sport of college baseball. They have been to plenty of College World Series. They are used to hosting regionals. By the way, they hosted a regional in Chapel Hill last season. A lot of the guys on that team are on this roster and will remember the experience of hosting and winning a regional. Right? They, they won that regional, then moved on and lost to Arkansas in the Supers. But a team like UNC being a three seed, that's just not something that you want to see when the regional draw comes out. A team that has is not going to step into Indiana State and be intimidated in any way, shape, or form. Like, at all. So, if you're Indiana State, the Sycamores have had a, a banner year, and, and I, I wish them the best. But at the same time, I don't know if I like their chances. And, and look, is it going to be Iowa? Is it going to be UNC? Does one of those teams get it done? Um, or even the, the four seeds, Wright State. Wright State's another team. In the, you know, they've played in the Horizon League in the past. I remember when they came to Russo Park about five years back and took a series from the Cajuns early on. And at the time, everyone was kind of confused about it. Wright State went on to win 40-plus games that year and uh, I think went to a regional final or close to it. So they're a program that's been there before. They're one of the better four seeds, too. Not a, not a four seed that I would immediately cross off the list. So I think Indiana State has their hands full. And um, if, I had to, if I had to pick a regional, other, you know, and I said Coastal, I don't think Coastal wins their own regional. But if I had to pick one that I think is the most likely to fall in their own host site situation... It's Indiana State, unfortunately, for the Sycamores. So that's my regional superlatives. I hope you all enjoyed that. I, I just I love this time of the year with college baseball, and um, it's 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 fun. It's double elimination. I love the way the format works. I think with four teams going to each site, it's perfectly balanced. I saw people floating around the idea earlier of, of having a play-in situation with the last four, the way that college basketball and expanding to 68. I'm not a fan of that at all. I like the fact that if you're in the tournament, you're on a level playing field. That's it. You don't have to play an extra game. You're one of the 64 teams in the tournament. Let's go decide on the field. And um, personally, that's how I hope it stays. we got to take a timeout. One segment left here on this Thursday edition of the show. We'll kind of wrap things up and get you set for an interesting weekend ahead. You're listening to Footnotes. This is Footnotes on the game. 1037 Lafayette and 1041 Lake Charles. Southwest Louisiana's sports station. Your home for the LSU Tigers and Houston Astros. A recent survey discovered that game listeners prefer our station over watching a mandated webinar at work. Well, thank you, everyone, for coming to this exciting meeting today to discuss... Take that, productivity in the workplace. This is The Game, 1037 Lafayette and 1041 Lake Charles, Southwest Louisiana's sports station.
Welcome back to Footnotes with Dawson Eiserlo filling in for Kevin Foote on this Thursday edition of the show with Kevin off to Coral Gables to cover the Louisiana Raging Cajuns in the Coral Gables Regional, which will feature the Cajuns, Texas, Miami, and Maine. The Black Bears are the four seed over there. Uh, Want to issue an apology, first of all, to all the wonderful people of Terre Haute. I cor- incorrectly said that, and fortunately, my guy RP3 came in and helped me out with that one. Not only did I mispronounce the name of their town, but I also told them that I think their team's going to lose in its own regional. So uh, my sincerest apologies to Terre Haute. And now I feel like I kind of have to root for the Sycamores to uh, get things done over there in that regional. So cleaning that up a little bit there. But uh, all things considered, I've had a blast kind of talking about some of my regional storyline, the favorite things I have about these things. I didn't even give a superlative to Kentucky um, because I didn't think they deserved it. But I guess it'd be the... um, most likely to have hotel quality linens in their dorm rooms where the teams are staying. That would be their superlative for that regional. Uh, of course, if you didn't hear us talk about it earlier in the week, Kentucky um, hosting, but there's some sort of country music festival in Lexington that booked up all the hotel rooms. So the baseball teams that are going to that regional, West Virginia, Indiana, and Ball State, were essentially given options to either stay like hours away or stay in dorm rooms on campus and then have to be charged for it. So we uh, we got a kick out of that earlier in the week on RP3 and Company and mentioned it briefly on Footnotes as well. Um, that's a strange story. And again, you're supposed to host, you know, you, well, you're not supposed to. You have to submit regional bid hosting bids in case people didn't realize that. Like you have to submit a bid that basically says, hey, we're capable of hosting a regional. And now usually for the top 16 20 teams in the country. It's not an issue. They're all usually pretty good baseball programs that have nice facilities, right? Well, occasionally you run into a situation where maybe a team plays in a really small stadium, so they submit their bid to play at a nearby minor league baseball park or anything like that, right? Well, sometimes that kind of clears up some of those issues. There's been situations in the past if a team really didn't have good enough facilities that maybe the two seed hosted the regional, and that's always kind of been a weird thing. It hasn't happened in a while, but we have had that where, you know, if let's say, for instance, um, if Indiana State didn't have a facility that was capable of hosting this regional, then Iowa would go ahead and host it. And even though every, all the games would be played at Iowa, Indiana State would still be the number one seed. Um, they just wouldn't get to actually host. So anyway, you have to host, you know, put these bids in. And apparently Lexington's bid um, got approved, even though there weren't going to be any hotels available because of some country music festivals. And I think also some like state track meets and some other high school state tournament events that are taking place in Lexington. What a wild weekend it's going to be over there in uh, Lexington, Kentucky. So that'll be fun. And um, by the way, I mean, LSU fans, that matters because that's the regional that the Tigers would be matched up with. If they moved on to Supers, they would play the winner of the Lexington Regional. Kentucky, you know, look, I was actually at Alec Box Stadium for the middle of the Saturday game, or I guess that was the finale of that series, yeah, because they played that on a Thursday, Friday, Saturday. Um, and it was a back-and-forth series. The Tigers won two out of three, but Kentucky, they play baseball in a very, you know, it's it's somewhat similar to the Cajuns with Matt Deggs, right? They will put pressure on you. They will bunt. They will steal bases. Um, they're tough to match up with, but the Tigers were able to, the, for the most part, handle them, and I think LSU's the more talented team if that were to be the matchup. But I got to say, West Virginia can really swing the bats. Ball State's not a bad four seed, and Indiana... Had a really good year in the Big Ten. So, like, I, I don't think the Lexington Regional is is at all just, you know, right down in ink that the that the national seed is going to move on. Um, plenty of regionals that we didn't touch on, but um, all across the country, I think it's going to be fascinating. You know, another one that I like, Virginia's the seventh seed, but East Carolina, who's the team that Tulane s- shocked in the AAC championship game, 
East Carolina has been there before. They've been a regional host site for um, you know several years in a row, I think, before this one. So watch out for East Carolina in Charlottesville, Virginia. I think they have a good chance. But um, you know, all things considered, we'll have a chance to talk about you know the regionals a little bit more um, on tomorrow's edition of both RP3 and Company and Footnotes. We'll have Blaine Viator in to, to host Footnotes tomorrow. Um, but on RP3 and Company, I mentioned it earlier, we're going to have um, a couple of guys on to preview the Coral Gables Regional from behind enemy lines, so to speak, from uh, the perspective of the host team in Miami and also the Cajuns' first opponent in the Texas Longhorns. So that will be fun. Um, you know, wrapping up the show here, first of all, I wanted to thank Kevin Foote for coming on, being our only guest of the day today um, on his own show. And um, also just want to thank everybody um, over here and thank the callers who usually call in. I know it's didn't get to as many of them today as I'd like to, but um, overall had a lot of fun doing this. I think the Saints signing Jesse James, I asked Foot about it. Um, I talked about it a little bit on RP3 and company. I don't have strong feelings about it, and I again, I don't know if he's even going to make the roster. Um, so sometimes I see a little bit of outrage about people asking who, why they signed this guy or that guy. I think it's a great reminder that on June 1st, most of these guys that get signed from here on out, with you know maybe a couple of exceptions of some bigger name guys like let's say DeAndre Hopkins who just came available that would be in a trade situation. Most of these signings are going to be camp bodies and training you know training camp preseason bodies. And look, if some of them have outstanding training camps and preseason runs, then maybe they'll make the roster. But uh, there's also a good chance that the guys that get signed post June one, outside of again a couple of roster exceptions and there's reasons guys are available, most of those guys are going to be battling for a roster spot. I think Jesse James is certainly in that situation. And maybe it's Lucas Kroll that he's fighting with. Um, maybe it's somebody else. But I think Juwan Johnson, Foster Moreau are your number one and two at tight end. I can't stand that Taysom Hill keeps getting listed on the depth chart as a tight end. He's not a tight end. We know that. He's a joker. He'll line up a few snaps a game at tight end, but that's it. Um, so I really, I, there. you know, it's funny. I guess you have to put a depth chart out. There really shouldn't even, Taysom should just be kind of like somewhere near the quarterback, just like a dot and that's the Taysom Hill spot in the depth chart, and he's the only one on it. There's nobody behind him. There's nobody in front of him. Um, I think that's where number seven should be. But training camp and things like that are going to are gonna ramp up in the near months ahead. Um, football is kind of on the horizon. We got a little bit of news about college football scheduling and a couple of um, TV announcements, so that kind of gets your brain on that. But for right now, I mean, NBA playoffs coming to a close with the finals. Stanley Cup playoffs coming to a close with the finals there. College baseball regionals getting underway. The MLB is now in full swing. There's a ton going on in the sports world, and um, we'll have a chance to follow all of it, not only tomorrow but throughout the weekend, um, and, and we'll see. I think, again, LSU, look, if I had to pick somebody, I'm clearly picking LSU in that regional, and I'm picking them in a clean sweep. If somebody gives them trouble, I think it's going to be a team that takes advantage of the bullpen. That would be my prediction. If LSU runs into issues or or finds a way to lose the regional, I think that'll be why. I don't think I think the lineup will come through, and I think the starters will be the guys, you know, especially Skeens and Floyd, will be the guys they've been. So that'll do it for today's show. Um, once again, thank you to everybody for tuning in, and we'll be back tomorrow.